Revelation, Return of the King. We've so far made it through chapter 1 where we've got that great vision of the glorified Christ. Then in the beginning of chapter 2, we looked at the first church of the seven listed there. We read about the church at Ephesus, the loveless church. Now we are on to church 2, Smyrna, which is the persecuted church. But earlier this year, I was reading a book by Dr. Erwin Lutzer. He was the longtime pastor of Moody Church in Chicago. He wrote a book called The Cross and the Shadow of the Crescent. And that book is really about Islam, how Islam has made great expanse across Europe and even into North America. He talks about the kind of persecution that a lot of Christians face in the world from Islamic persecutors. And in the book, he gives testimonies of several Muslims who have converted to Christ, many of which did so at Moody Church in Chicago. And he told the story of one woman in that book, a woman named Majida. And I want to read for you an excerpt of her testimony this morning. She said, I was born in Kuwait to a Muslim family and attended a Muslim school. As a little girl, I did not experience love, but I was reared in an atmosphere of anger and fear and violence. My father was a very harsh man. I became a devoted Muslim at the age of 10 when I began wearing a hijab to cover my face and hair. I did special fasting and prayed five times a day to grow closer to Allah. I read the Quran and studied at the mosque, but inside, she said, I felt dirty, even though I remained a pure virgin until my wedding day. She said, when I got married, I was excited because at last I thought I would be loved. The man I was arranged to marry decided that we would move to America. But soon I learned that I had to obey my husband's rules without questioning or I would be beaten. I tried to please my husband, but he frequently beat me. One night, she wrote, I was hurt so badly, I thought I would die. We had our first child, and I thought with the coming of the baby that it would change the heart of my husband, but it did not. She said, eventually I was befriended by a Christian who secretly began to share Christ with me. I started attending church with her. I had been taught all my life that Christians were infidels because they taught that Jesus was the Son of God. Despite this, she wrote, I was intrigued and I kept going to hear more about this Jesus that I never knew, a man full of love and mercy and grace. When my husband found out about church, she said, he raped me. I decided it was now time to leave him. But a month into our separation, I found out I was pregnant with my second child. This was the most difficult time in my whole life. I prayed, though, to receive Jesus one morning. I knew eventually I would have to tell my family about my decision to abandon Islam and follow Christ. And when I did call my parents in Jordan, she said, I told them I had become a Christian and I was planning to be baptized and they were very angry and disowned me. She wrote to this day, my family will not talk to me. But, she said, my life story, although it began with anger and abuse, God's healing love has found me and been poured over me ever since. She said, I was raised to hate the cross, but now I love the message of Jesus. 
I found in Jesus the love that I always wanted. She said, I did not know how I would make it without my husband or my family, but Jesus has sustained me through it all. And that's one woman's testimony. Now, Majida's conversion is amazing. But the persecution that we read of that she faced in her life as a result of her decision to follow Jesus is really a painful reality for many Christians across the world. Christians in Africa and China and in the Middle East. In the end of 2016, the U.S. State Department reported these facts. They said that Christians are the single most widely persecuted religious group in the world today. And they said also that the persecution of Christians is worse today than at any other time in history. That's interesting because the media doesn't really tell you that side of the story, do they? But they presented these statistics. This is coming from our own government. It's estimated that an average of 322 Christians are killed each month for their faith. This is worldwide. And then they said that the top persecuting countries are North Korea, Iraq, Eritrea, Afghanistan, Syria, Pakistan, Somalia, Sudan, Iran, and Libya. Now, Majida and others like her who have faced martyrdom or torture or imprison, they have been suffering for their faith, and they are what you might call modern examples of the kind of men and women that we read about in Revelation 2 that belong to the church at Smyrna. Now, Smyrna is known as the persecuted church because as you read her report card given to us, starting in verse 8, you see how she suffered trial and tribulation and how Jesus took note of the suffering of these people. Now, this church is unique for a couple of reasons. She represents the second age of church history. If the church in Ephesus represented the apostolic church that existed soon after the ascension of Christ and through the book of Acts, then we think that the church at Smyrna represents that church that grew during the persecution of the Roman Empire. As the Roman Caesars sought to stamp out the existence of the church. Now, the letter to the church at Smyrna is unique for another reason, because Smyrna is one of two churches in these seven that are mentioned, of which they receive no negative report. The other, who receives a totally positive report, is the church at Philadelphia. Now, as we think about persecution... For a majority of American history, Christians in this nation have been insulated from much of the persecution that is normal in the rest of the world. I don't know about you, but I've never been imprisoned. I've never been blackmailed. I've never been disowned by my family just for professing Christ. And most Christians in the United States never have and never will. But we do have to notice this, that times are a-changing and that our society has definitely gone more and more secular. Can I get a witness from some of you who lived through the golden age and now see and don't recognize the country that you live in? So we're seeing a sea change in America where this type of persecution is in very mild ways beginning to build. Now, there's a lot that we can learn from this church at Smyrna. 
And so we'll turn our attention there for the remainder of this message. We'll begin in verse 8. And I want you to see number one as we study the faithful testimony of the church. The faithful testimony of the church. Now, as the Lord begins to unfold this letter, as He talks about these believers at Smyrna, He compliments them in two ways for their faithful testimony. First, He tells us that they were faithful in persecution. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Here it is, verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Now let's get a little background on this church in Smyrna. You will notice that the city of Smyrna was known for its chief export, which was myrrh. In fact, that word myrrh is in the name Smyrna. Now, myrrh was a precious commodity in the ancient world. It was created by the crushing of a plant, pictured here. And when they crushed the plant, it released a pleasant-smelling oil that was turned into a perfume. In fact, you'll remember that when the Magi came to visit the Christ child in Matthew chapter 2, one of the gifts that they brought him was myrrh. And then you'll notice as you continue to read in the gospel, when you get to John 19, when Jesus' body was prepared for burial, that they wrapped his body in linen, and that linen was treated with myrrh. So it's interesting that we read here of Smyrna and myrrh, and Smyrna being the persecuted church, and myrrh is an appropriate symbol of that because it's a picture of suffering and death. Just as that myrrh was crushed and the pleasant aroma was released from it, so too when the members of the body of Christ at Smyrna were crushed and persecuted, it released a beautiful aroma of worship and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, and He took notice of it. He said, I know about your tribulation. Now, the persecution that the Smyrnians faced came from two different sources, we are told here in this text. First, it came from the Roman government. In fact, if you study a little bit of history, you find out that Smyrna was the capital city of what was known as emperor worship. In the year 195 B.C., they built a huge temple to the goddess of Rome called Dea Roma. And there's a picture of what historians believe that that temple in the middle of Smyrna looked like. At that temple, what they would be asked to do was all the citizens of Rome would be asked to go every year and pledge allegiance to Rome by offering a pinch of incense on the altar and saying, Caesar is Lord. And so when Christians came along and would not bow their knee and would not offer incense and would not say, Caesar is Lord, guess what happened? The Smyrnian Christians became public enemy number one and they received persecution. A second source of persecution against the Smyrnian church is given to us in verse 9. We read of it. Jesus said to them, And I know of the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, who is that referring to? Well, we know from the book of Acts 
that Jews began persecuting the Christian community from the very get-go. You remember what happened to Paul in Acts chapter 9 when he went into the city of Damascus? Was he able to preach with freedom? No, the Jews in that community came out and made life difficult on Paul such to the extent that he had to escape the city in a basket. And then when you get to Antioch in Acts chapter 13, Paul was accosted again by some Jewish enemies. So it is very likely that the Jews in Smyrna were also persecuting the Christian community that was there. And it's interesting that I'm sure the Jews thought that they were doing God a favor, but according to Christ, they were of the synagogue of Satan. They were doing the devil's work. Now, the good application that I take from this verse as I read it is what Jesus says there, I know your tribulation. Do you know that the risen Christ looks over your life, looks over our church, and He can say the same thing? I know what you're going through. I know your situation. I know the persecution that you face in your family, how your family thinks you're absolutely crazy for going to church and worshiping God. I know what your co-workers say about you when you open up your Bible at break time. I know the ugly things that people say behind your back. I know the trials that you go through. Does that encourage you that Jesus knows and sees and cares about your situation and what is happening in your life? In fact, listen to me. Everything that happens in your life is Father-filtered. It passes first through the hands of God And if He permits it, He allows it to touch your life. And His presence in your trial will give you the power to endure. Jesus was with these persecuted believers. And He's with us today. They were faithful in persecution. But then we also read that they were faithful in poverty. Did you see that also in verse 9? He says, I know your tribulation and... Your poverty. And then look at this little parenthesis here. But you are rich. (laughs) What a blessing that is. That even though the world had put a label on them, Jesus knew the truth of the situation. Another way that the world waged war against these Smyrnian Christians was they oppressed them economically. Now the text here doesn't give any specifics on how this might have happened, but... We can surmise from other writings in the New Testament how this would have happened, that employers may have refused to hire Christians. Or bosses simply took advantage of Christian workers by not paying them a fair wage. In fact, we know that this happened. James told us that it happened in James 2.6. Remember what it said there? It said, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? But the whole blessing of reading this is that even though the Smyrnian church was poor in the eyes of the world, they were rich according to Jesus Christ. In other words, because of their suffering, because of their situation, these believers had true spiritual riches that the world can't give and the world can't take away. Like gold that had been refined in a fire, the faith, of these Smyrnian Christians had been tested and proven trustworthy. And friend, I want the Lord to be able to look at my faith and my life and say, yeah, I know the world says this about you, but here's what I see, Brother Derek. And that's the appraisal that really matters. Christ's appraisal of us 
is more important than what is happening to us or what people are saying about us. And if he says I'm rich, (laughs) then I'm rich. Not according to the world standard, but according to the riches that I have in him. Now, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7 is a good parallel verse to study along with this. Notice what Peter wrote about there. Verse 6, In this you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Of Jesus Christ. He says to this church, look, I know what you're going through. I know the fire is hot. It seems as if you are losing. But I'm telling you, church, that all of this buffeting, all these storms, all this fire is actually making you rich in your faith. Here's something to consider. Persecution has never harmed the church. Poverty has never bankrupt the church. But you know what has? Prosperity. You know what puts the death nail in the church? When they begin to love things more than they love God. When they put their own comforts ahead of the Great Commission. Later, in fact, when we begin to study the church at Laodicea in chapter 3, we're going to see that that church is the exact opposite of what we find here in Smyrna. The Laodiceans were materially rich, but yet when Christ looked at them, He said, you are poor, miserable, blind, and naked. And yet it's the very opposite of what is happening here in this situation. They were poor and beat up, and Christ looked at them and said, you're rich, brother. Listen, I would rather bow to Jesus in rags than to stand in riches without Him. I'd rather have Jesus and be in the pit than live in the penthouse and not have Jesus. I would rather stand with God and be judged by the world than to stand with the world and be judged by God. Like the old song, the hymn, we don't sing it too much anymore, but maybe we need to, brother. Like the old hymn says, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by His nail-pierced hands. You see, when you have the Lord, oh, you have everything plus some. So we see, number one, the faithful testimony of the church. Then we see number two, as we continue to read, the fiery trial of this church. The fiery trial is in verse 10. Notice what the Lord says. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now imagine, what if he said these words to you? Don't fear what you're about to suffer. The devil is about to try you. He's going to throw you in prison. You'll be tested. But be faithful. And I'll give you the crown of life. 
he said this to a group of believers? What if he said it to you and me? How would we react? Vance Havner once said this. He said, the casual Christian doesn't experience any persecution because he doesn't give the devil enough trouble to get his attention. <laughs> and yet, maybe the greatest indictment against the American church today is that nobody wants to persecute it. You ever thought about that? Well, that was certainly not true of the case here in Smyrna. Because according here to Christ's sobering forecast, He tells them, it's about to get bad, guys. The fire is about to be turned up. Some of you are going to be thrown in prison. But notice there's a silver lining to all this. And that is that God would only allow the enemy to inflict so much damage against the church and not one whit more. Because notice what he says there. He gives a, a time period on it. And for ten days you shall have tribulation. See, the Lord designed this trial. For this church. And he said it would last 10 days, which many commentators believe is symbolic of the 10 different waves of persecution that came against the church during the reign of the Roman emperors from 64 AD, beginning with Emperor Nero, and going through the end to 311 AD with Diocletian. There were 10 separate persecutions carried out during that time period by different Roman emperors. And many commentators say that is exactly what Jesus is referring to there in that passage. And you know what I thought about? It? When you're going through a trial, does it not seem like it will last forever? You're in the middle of that battle with cancer. You're in the middle of praying for that prodigal son or daughter. You're in that horrible work situation. You're in that marriage that you're the only one that believes and comes to church and it's just hard and you think, Lord, when is this ever going to end? And yet, does a trial last forever? Does a storm last forever? No. There's always a beginning and there's always an end to it. And that's the silver lining of this. Jesus said, it'll, it'll be for ten days. It'll be for an allotted period which I have allowed into your lives and I won't let any more suffering come into your life than what I need to accomplish my purpose. Warren Wiersbe said this, he said, when God permits His children to go through the furnace, He keeps His eye on the clock and His hand on the thermostat. His loving heart knows how much and how long. Now, one of the most famous Christians that suffered during this time period was a man named Polycarp. Have you ever heard of the story of Polycarp? He was a pastor in Smyrna in the 2nd century A.D. He died in the year 156. And many historians believe that he was an old man in his 80s. And they also think that he was the last living person that would have known an apostle. Him being a disciple of John. And if you go and you read his story in Fox's Book of Martyrs, here's what happened to Polycarp. He was arrested by the Roman authorities for preaching Jesus is Lord. They dragged him into an amphitheater, an 80-some-year-old man. This amphitheater where they fed Christians to lions. And they gave him an opportunity to recant. They said, Polycarp, 
Here's an altar. Here's some incense. If you will offer a pinch of incense on the altar, bow your knee and say, Caesar is Lord, we'll spare your life. Just don't preach anymore about Jesus. Polycarp stood up and I imagine with a wrinkled hand and a bent arthritic finger stuck it in their face and said these words. He said, 80 and 6 years have I served Jesus and He never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my King who saved me? Wow. Polycarp refused to compromise his beliefs. And the story is told that he was burned alive at the stake. And as the flames began to curl up and lick against his body, witnesses say that they heard old Polycarp say, Lord, I thank Thee that Thou hast graciously thought me worthy of this day and this hour, that I may be part of the martyrs to die for Jesus. He thought it was an honor and a privilege. Persecution. None of us pray for persecution, do we? I don't pray for it. I don't want to go through these various trials. But persecution comes into your life when you are so effective that you get the hackles of the devil and this world so disturbed that they declare war against you. I don't want persecution, but I want to be faithful and I want to be effective for the Lord. And I know if you spend any time in the ministry, if you spend any time serving the Lord with a whole heart, you're going to get a black eye or two as you go through it. It's just the call. That's what happens when you take up a cross. Don't you ever believe these pretty-faced, bejeweled preachers with slick-back hair and nice sermons that tell you that this life is going to be full of ease and comfort and prosperity? That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible says to us, look, you're about to go through some bad stuff. You're about to be tested. But I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to go with you through the fire. And in going with you through the fire, you're going to learn things about me that you couldn't learn if life was a bed of roses. You're going to see me do things in your life that you do, didn't understand before, but now you do. I don't pray for persecution, but I know this. If I'm being persecuted, it must mean that I'm doing something right. If the devil is fighting me every acre, tooth and nail, it must mean I'm going in the right direction. Amen. So I pray that I would be faithful, and I know that you do too. Number two, the fiery trial of the church. And the faithful testimony of the church and then we finish with this, number three, the future triumph of the church. The future. He says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Notice the great trade-off. If you view this from the perspective of eternity, here's what the Lord is saying. Persecution, trial, hard times, that fiery furnace is a mere momentary light affliction compared to what I have in store for you that remain faithful to the end. 
It's like this. Imagine that somebody hands you an envelope. And as you open the envelope, oh, you get a paper cut. But you open the letter and you find out that you have been awarded a wonderful European vacation to go see all the sights and the sounds, all expenses paid. Would you be more overjoyed by the news of that great reward or would you be caught up with the paper cut? I'm not trying to minimize trials and suffering, but this is the perspective that the Lord wants us to take. The suffering, the trials, the persecution in this life is like a little paper cut compared to the glory and the honor and the reward that He has for those who are faithful to the end. It's an incredible trade-off, a little persecution in the here and now for a prize in the hereafter. Listen to what James 1.12 says. Great parallel passage. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Who remains steadfast under trial. For he has stood the test and he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. God uses present trials because he's building up for us a future triumph. Who was going to win in the end? Was the world going to win? Was the synagogue of Satan going to have the day? Was the devil going to raise the banner of victory? No! It was going to be God's church. They were going to raise triumphant in the end and receive that crown of life from the Lord Jesus. But you go through those trials and those tribulations and it seems like God is quiet. You cry out to God from the depths of your soul, Lord, where are you? And you know what I thought about the other day? When I used to have a test at school. You ever have a math test at school? A spelling test at school? The teacher would hand out the paper. He'd say, pull out your pen. She'd say, pull out your pen and your pencil. We're going to have a test. And I want it to be silent. <laughs> the teacher is always quiet during the test. You think that God isn't there. You think that God doesn't know. And you think that God can't hear your cries. But the teacher is always silent during the test. And then when the test is over, when the battles are fought and the victories won, and you stand with crown in hand and you crumple at the feet of Jesus and you cast that crown at His feet, you'll be able to say, Lord, it was worth it after all! Everything that I had to face down there, every fight that I had to fight, every trial and every temptation that I faced, Lord, in the end, if I can hold this crown and cast it at Your feet, it's worth it after all! I think about the old song that I think it was the Spencers they used to sing that song. It'll be worth it after all, child. It'll be worth it after all. After all of these trials, we will hear Jesus call. It'll be worth it after all, child. After all of this climbing, it'll be worth it after all. Then they have a verse in that song It goes like this. Now when you're down in the valley, prayer is all I can do. 
But the Lord sends deliverance that strengthens you. But when you're up on the mountain and you see me struggling along, say a prayer to Jesus and let's help everybody get home. Oh, the church is the greatest underdog. The world beats it up. The world curses it. The world spits at it. But who's going to stand with the Lamb of God at the end? It'll be the church. Every time somebody has tried to destroy the church with persecution, do you know what's happened? Study history. The church has grown In fact, somebody said trying to destroy the church with persecution is like trying to get rid of a dandelion by blowing on it. (sighs) An old dandelion and blow it out in the wind, you blow those seeds everywhere, it only spreads it. That's what happens with persecution. That's how God uses it. And this church would endure, and this little church of Smyrna, and the Christians during that era would be the ones that would conquer the Roman Empire. Where's the Roman Empire today? It's in ruins. You go visit it on a sightseeing tour. Who can name the emperors of Rome? Very few people. But you know what still stands today? The Lord Jesus Christ and His church. You know what still be standing a thousand years from now if He tarries the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? And when the heavens and the earth are remade, you know who's still going to be standing on that new heavens and new earth? It'll be the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I finish with this. In 2015, most Americans received their introduction to the terror group known as ISIS or the Islamic State. And that was when ISIS released a horrific video of their soldiers beheading 21 Christians on a Libyan beach. And then at the end of that video, they declared, quote, an all-out war on the cross. Tragedy. But, there's a side of the story that you may not know about. And I read this in David Jeremiah's book, Is This the End? Listen to this. This is so powerful. He said, one of those killed on the beach was an African man named Matthew Ierga. There he is. What reporters could find out about his life was that when he was captured, He wasn't a Christian at all. And for unclear reasons, he was swept up with those other 20 Egyptian Coptic Christians and marched to the beach that day to die. But here's the story. Matthew knelt in his orange jumpsuit at the end of the line as the ISIS executioners asked each of the Christians to deny Jesus and then murdered them when they refused. Finally, the butchers arrived at Matthew. Although he was not a professing Christian at the time he was captured, they assumed that he was. And they demanded that he reject the Christian's God. And they asked him, Do you deny Christ? Having observed the faith and the courage of the other Egyptian Christians throughout the ordeal, Matthew was deeply moved by their unbending faith. And at that moment, he knew that he wanted what they had more than life itself. And Matthew calmly confessed to his captors, their God is my God. 
And based on his last words, his confession moments later, I believe that like the thief on the cross who confessed in Jesus, that Matthew entered paradise just like his fellow martyrs. And here's the great irony of the whole thing. In an attempt to shrink the size of the church triumphant, ISIS actually caused it to grow by one. And heaven will one day reveal how many others like Matthew believed in Jesus despite the attempts of enemies to prevent the advance of the gospel. Only God could orchestrate it. Only God could get glory out of something like that. But as I watch that, I pray and I ask myself, if they ever put the sword to my throat, God, give me the courage not to deny my Lord.